This uh, time of the year is one where every household has traditions. And, of course, one of the fun parts about getting married is you merge the transitions. You hope it's a successful merge, not kind of a 128 merge where somebody's coming in at you know, 60 miles an hour with their traditions and somebody else has to move over. Uh, when my wife and I uh, celebrated our first Christmas, I said, you know, we've got to set aside one gift that we can open on Christmas Eve. And she said, oh, tell me more. She said, do we get to open all of them on Christmas Eve? And I said, no, it's one. You open one gift on Christmas Eve. Everybody does this, don't they? No, no, as it turns out, not everybody did, but my wife was quite happy with it. Now, is there anybody out there where you open all of the gifts on Christmas Eve? It's okay, we're not going to judge. <laughs> I can see how Christmas Day could be a lot more fun that way. Okay, uh, maybe it's a particular type of cookie without which it is simply not Christmas in your home. We all have these traditions. Uh, apparently, I am told, in uh, Venezuela, in Caracas, the capital, uh, it is traditional to uh, attend Mass on Sunday morning, not terribly unusual. Uh, however, one gets there via roller skate. So on Christmas morning, they shut off the streets to cars, and apparently everybody roller skates to Mass, which sounds kind of fun, actually. Uh, good, good day to be working the emergency room if people roller skate as well as I do. Uh, Germany, um, there is a tradition uh, that goes back a ways of hanging a, a pickle ornament, not a real pickle, I assume, uh, an ornament in the shape of a pickle on the Christmas tree, and then the kids are set loose to find it. Now, those who have small children in the room are wondering how exactly does that work? A bunch of children scrambling in the tree for one glass ornament. But apparently the child who finds it gets a special something or other, some sort of treat. So that's their tradition. But the reason we all have these traditions uh, in our homes, these little peculiarities, especially at this time of the year, which is a significant holiday for us, is that traditions have a way of grounding the present in the past. It's sort of a connective tissue, isn't it? That helps us take what we're doing and place it in a larger context. And then once you add children uh, and you start sharing your family traditions with them, you realize that there's sort of a future aspect that's now also happening. And so all of a sudden, there's this, this continuity of past and present and future that revolve around this celebration. And if you can catch something of the nuance of that, that is precisely what Mary is identifying as central to her feelings at the very first Christmas, as she is carrying the child who will become the Messiah. She reaches into tradition and the past to see the continuity of God's faithfulness to his people. And in particular, what we're going to see this morning is that there are three sources of hope that she sees in this child that she will bear. The first is that Christ, our hope, provides his salvation to the lowly. Christ 
our hope, provides his salvation to the lowly. If you take a look at verse 46, Mary says, My soul keeps magnifying the Lord, and my spirit is rejoicing in God my Savior. He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. Now, what does she mean by magnifying? Well, it's the same thing as, as that piece of equipment uh, in a laboratory. The idea of magnify is to make big. Mary's choice here is to make big God's name and God's reputation as it has come to her in her experience. And it's important to catch that this would be sort of her, her opening in this uh, little section of poetry that's attributed to her because she is actually answering a statement from her cousin Elizabeth. So you remember the story. Uh, Gabriel, the angel, announces to Mary that she will uh, be bearing the Messiah. And pretty soon, Mary heads off to spend some time with her cousin Elizabeth, who is also pregnant, uh, miraculously pregnant. She and Zechariah thought they were too old to have children. And now Elizabeth and Zechariah are expecting the child we will know as John the Baptist. And so when Mary goes over to see her cousin Elizabeth, Elizabeth says, wow, as soon as I heard your greeting, the baby jumped in my womb. It's really something special going on here. You are the most blessed of all women. Now, have you ever thought about the fact that Mary could have replied, yep, I sure am. <laughs> I am something special. Obviously, God thought I was a pretty, good person to be able to bear you know I mean there's a lot of mothers who have felt that their children were sinlessly perfect um, but she actually was right <laughs> so I mean if anybody has ever had an opportunity to, to kind of say hey you know check this out it would have been Mary and live vicariously maybe through her child what is her response then to, you're the most blessed of all women, and blessed is the child you will bear? Her response is, yeah, let me turn that around and magnify the Lord. Let me tell you that I'm rejoicing. I agree with you, something really special is happening. Something really amazing is going on. But I'm rejoicing in the fact that he has done it for me. And so Mary says, yes, I'm blessed, God has blessed me. But then she gives two causal statements. She gives two reasons for it. Uh, the first is uh, verse 48. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. And yes, all generations will call me blessed. But it's because God noticed me. God saw. God heard. God provided. She is rooting her identity in the fact of God's awareness and regard and grace to her in her experience. Now that's a radically different way of, of observing any momentous occasion, particularly the birth of a child. If you, you look at the cleverly designed uh, Christmas commercials, uh, which start uh, pretty much after the back-to-school sales and if you look at those, you start to get a sense that they're very cleverly trying to place all of us as consumers in the middle of the holiday. 
So it's the, the, the clumsy husband running into the jewelers on uh, Christmas Eve, five minutes before they pull the gates down, finding the perfect ring. Um, and the doting wife who, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> wonderful. Or it's the, the oppressed mother who's hurrying to get kids into this brand new beautiful Toyota minivan. <laughs> or it's the grandparents who thought to provide Wi-Fi for the, the kids. Uh, what they don't show in that commercial is that all the family who has now traveled miles and miles to come and see them is going to be doing this on their phones the entire time during Christmas. These commercials are all about how do we take the person um, uh, who we want to deprive them of their money, how do we take that person and make them think that Christmas is all about them? Do you know, can you see that? Mary's words here are the act, exact opposite. She's saying, I'm a maidservant. I'm just here to serve the Lord. And out of nowhere, he had regard for me. He paid attention to me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't do anything worthy of it. And I didn't have to. He had regard for me as someone who was lowly. The second thing she says is in verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me. I didn't do them. I didn't have to. And can you see how incredibly releasing that notion can be when it's not about us anymore, when we're not at the center of the narrative, when it's about the Lord and the great things he has done for us, we're sort of off the hook. She's celebrating the fact that God has been gracious to her even when she didn't deserve it. Holy is his name, she says. His mercy is on those who fear him. From generation to generation, she sees this continuity of God's faithfulness. And I would tell you that what she's describing is a perfect recipe for how anyone comes to saving faith in Christ. And that is that we have to to have our vision reoriented to understand that we are lowly. That we are not in charge. That we are actually sinful and we have a right to fear a God whose name is holy. But that this God has provided his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He has had regard for us in our messed up state. When we didn't deserve it, when we didn't do anything to motivate it, he freely chose to have regard for us and to do great things on our behalf. And we don't have to earn it. We simply have to accept it. And in raising Christ from the dead, there is an offer of a new life. From generation to generation, this sense of continuity going forward that we can have in him. So the first source of hope is that Christ, our hope, provides his salvation to the lowly. Secondly, Christ, our hope, shows his strength to the proud. Christ, our hope, shows his strength to the proud. Notice how she sort of starts to think 
beyond herself as she progresses in this, in this poem or this song. She said, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down mighty ones from their thrones. <clears throat> now you might say, Mary, it's a little strange for you to be talking about the Lord putting down rulers from their thrones. Haven't you read the prophecies about the Messiah? Because we know that 33 years later or so, Mary will be seeing her, this same son that she's carrying now in her womb, hanging on a cross, apparently the victim of collusion between the, the Jewish deep state and Rome. Well, it doesn't look like many rulers are being brought down from their thrones by this Christ. She and Joseph, uh, warned in a dream, will in a couple of years have to flee their home area of Nazareth for Egypt. They're going to have to become refugees because of what uh, an evil ruler will decide. So if you look at the early story of Christmas on through really the, the Christ's life, you don't see a lot of this, the proud and the arrogant sort of being put down and the lonely and the humble being lifted up. We know that's part of how God works in the world. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Yeah, we kind of know that's part of his nature, but certainly the events of this don't seem to be happening. And Mary and Joseph won't really be experiencing that circumstantially. This young woman, in articulating these words, is displaying an incredible amount of faith that there's something bigger going on than her own immediate circumstances. That God is up to something much larger over the sweep of salvation history that will one day be true. Because the Lord gets the last laugh over Pontius Pilate and over Herod and over Caesar Augustus and all these other characters. He is still reigning as king. They are very much not. Notice that he opposes the proud. She has an interesting expression here. Uh, he scatters them in the imagination of their hearts. Their own little pet delusions. He takes, and it's an interesting word she uses, this idea of scattering can mean to squander or to waste. It can mean uh, when you're separating wheat from chaff, to toss the chaff up in the air and just let the four winds take it. Hey. To me, this was, was very convicting as I was looking at this passage this week. Because, you know, I think I come to the Lord with a lot of imaginations in my heart. With an agenda. What's the old expression? If you want to make the Lord laugh, tell him your plans. And there are a lot of hopes and ambitions that I have that the Lord has seen fit to scatter, to just poof, gone. Now, our reaction to that can be one where we say, okay, he will exalt the lowly. If I come to him hungry and broken and with a sense that all of the plans I had have gone belly up and that now I'm empty, it says he will fill the hungry with good things. The rich he will send away empty. 
This is more than just a, a socioeconomic difference or, or monetary difference between people. Uh, think of the story later on in Luke of the rich young ruler, where you've got this young man who comes to Christ as someone who is wealthy, as someone who has imaginings in his heart that he's perfect and is worthy of Christ's regard, and he's saying, Christ, boy, I bet you're, you're glad I showed up. I am going to be the Robin to your Batman. <laughs> and the Lord tells him, great, one thing you lack, just give away everything you have, make yourself lowly, give up your entire position and your, all of your ambitions, surrender all of that, and then you can come and be my disciple like these guys who smell like fish. <laughs> and it says he went away sad. The, the rich, he has sent away empty. It might be rich in terms of monetarily. <clears throat> it could be rich in terms of position, or it could be just rich in terms of ambition and self, the, the way you see yourself. But when you come to God with imaginations of your heart, hold them very lightly. Because his plan for you is far better. I am sure that Mary and Joseph, as an engaged young couple, he owned his own construction business. Uh, she was probably looking forward to being a, a good mother. They seem to both have been very righteous people. They had dreams and hopes for themselves as a couple. And the Lord absolutely stood those plans on their head. And we see that the gospel writers tell us about how Joseph struggled with that. And yet here's this brave young woman who's saying, yeah, I, I had some imaginings too. The Lord scattered them and has given me something so much better. He has filled me with something so much more than my own dreams would have allowed. So God shows his strength to the proud, but exalts the humble. Finally, Christ our hope fulfills his promise to his people. Christ, our hope, fulfills his promises to his people. Notice verse 54. She concludes, again, she's, she's connecting her experience and what the Lord is doing for her and through her with the larger experience of God's people. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. It, it, remembering his mercy doesn't mean that he kind of forgot. It's like when you're yelling at the kids, and then you remember that you've been trying to work on that, and you're saying, oh, that's right, I was supposed to be yes, less yelly. <laughs> oh, okay, right. Or, you know, it's Christmas, I really can't send them to the rooms for the next five years. <laughs> that's not God's nature. <laughs> the idea of him remembering mercy is that he consults his mercy, or that aspect of, of perfect nature that he has where he is holy, he is righteous, he is merciful, he is gracious, and there seems to be no tension in himself. His mercy is now being displayed in giving Christ to a people who don't deserve him because there was a promise made. Now, we're not going to go back and explore that promise, but she specifically mentions Abraham and his seed. Now, you'll remember back in Genesis uh, 13, Genesis 12, through Genesis 17, 
There's this whole situation with Abraham and Sarah who are called out of their homeland. And God says, go to a place I will show you. And Abraham's sitting there, sort of in the car, waiting to punch the address into the phone to pull up Google Maps. And he says, where am I going? And God says, I'll tell you later. Now, well, how am I supposed to check the traffic on the way? Don't worry about it anymore. I got this. So off they go, by faith. And this promise, uh, because Abraham, like us, gets tempted to forget about the promise, gets tempted to doubt it in the midst of things that don't look very promisey. And the Lord continues to reiterate it. And later on, the writer of the Hebrews will tell us, you know, that was actually by faith that he was able to leave his home, by faith that he was able to continue wandering, by faith he was able to trust along with his wife that God would do something through them. Because he had transferred his loyalty from his earthly home to the heavenly one. God had fulfilled his promise, but that fulfillment of the promise, participating in that, meant leaving behind everything he had known. The same thing for Mary. Not a wonder the story of Abraham and Sarah, uh, again, like Elizabeth and Zechariah, miraculous uh, birth of a child with Isaac, uh, having to leave their home and go to a place and start a set of plans that were never their intention in the first place. Yeah, I can imagine that Joseph and Mary are looking back on biblical heroes like Abraham and Sarah and finding some degree of comfort in what's happening there. And she sees this as not a temporary promise, but as a forever promise. Because she says it's to Abraham and to his seed forever. She is seeing that this promise that God will be fulfilling and using her as, as one of uh, the, the players in, in the whole drama, in the whole outworking of his salvation. She is seeing this as an eternal promise in which she's participating. There is a continuity to this. This hope goes beyond and outside of her. Whatever it costs her to participate in it. Hope can be a very powerful thing. Um, I once had a professor who shared a story about his father-in-law. His father-in-law was, was having some real heart issues. Um, couldn't really been, be exposed to a lot of stress. Unfortunately, this man was a real sports fan. So the doctor came up with, with what was kind of an innovative idea. He said, look, I want you to be able to watch the game, but you got to wait. I want you to record it. And the next day, check the paper or listen to the radio or whatever and get the score. Then you can watch the game. Because if you already know what the score is, you can still lament and get upset about the fumbles and the turnovers or whatever. But the stress of watching your team be at narrow margins with their opponents and the emotional investment is far less. Abraham and Mary, Elizabeth, these people in these gospel accounts of, of the first Christmas, the hope that they have is rooted in the fact that they know the score at the end of the game. They realize that the promised Messiah, who is now all of a sudden being given 
is going to change everything. That's why this, this passage seems to have such a grand scope to it. And the hope that Christ's coming changes, maybe destroys our plans, but offers something in exchange that is so much higher and so much better. That if we'll come lowly in accepting our status and need for forgiveness, that there is a hope of a better, new, and eternal life as part of God's people. This is an incredible hope and an incredible promise that takes a lot of anxiety out of life. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the gift of Christ, our hope. We're we're impressed, Father, at Mary's faith. And we're also a little convicted at her ability to get out of her own situation, return glory to you, and put you at the center of the events surrounding that first Christmas. By your grace, Father, would you give us the ability to do the same, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.